When I say the words coffee shop, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Other than coffee. Anybody? Well, for me, it's Starbucks. I mean, where else can you go and get a $5 cup of coffee, right? <laughs> Did you notice there's a new Starbucks just opened south on Randall Road in Batavia? It's close to where I live. And you also know there's a Starbucks just south of this campus, also on Randall Road. So now in the eight-minute drive from my house to South Street, I drive past two Starbucks coffee shops. Did you know that today in America there are almost 17,000 Starbucks coffee shops? 34,000 worldwide. Starbucks now boasts annual global sales of $25 billion. But do you know how Starbucks got started? started in 1971 in Seattle. It was a company that sold coffee beans, gourmet coffee beans, to people who went home and ground them up and made their own coffee. About a decade later or so, a man named Howard Schultz bought the company and made the decision not just to sell beans, but to, make, to sell coffee by the cup. And he was inspired by what's called third-place theory. That is that people need three places in their lives. We have home, we have work, and we need a third place a place to find community, a place to find relationship and connection. And he envisioned Starbucks to be that great third place. In fact, in a letter to shareholders in 2021, right as the pandemic seemed to be more or less coming to an end, the then CEO of Starbucks wrote, Starbucks is a warm and welcoming place outside of our homes and our workspaces where we connect and build community, providing a feeling of comfort that lifts customers everywhere and in every way. Starbucks has never been more relevant than now as communities seek to reconnect and heal. I will show, share wonderful stories with my grandchildren knowing that Starbucks will be there for them and future generations to come. It hit me as I read that, that if I just substituted the word church for Starbucks, it still made sense. And I wondered, is that really what we are together? Are we just a glorified Starbucks. We're in a series called The Way, as you know, in the months following Jesus' death and resurrection, as the church exploded under the power of the Holy Spirit, people didn't know what to call this community of Jesus followers. They didn't know what it was. And so they just called it The Way. So we are spending this series um, studying where we came from as people of the way, because 2,000 years later, we still are people of the way. We're studying what we believe, how we live, and how that's absolutely unique in the world in which we live. We began a couple weeks ago with part one when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We said the way of Jesus is absolutely exclusive. He is the only way to the Father, to salvation. And yet we said it's also the most inclusive way because his way is open to anyone who will come to him by faith. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 when he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And we said that to follow Jesus, we need a radical change in our operating system. That we are no longer led and directed by self. Self is replaced by the cross of Jesus. And last week, we looked at what Jesus said in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me... And I in him, he is it that will bear much fruit. So these first three weeks, if you noticed, we've been looking about how, about at what the way means in the life of an individual believer. 
What does it mean for me or for you to be a person of the way? To live in relationship with Christ. But now we're going to change our focus these next few weeks and look at what it means when we are all together as people of the way. What, what does it look like collectively? We're going to look at a very familiar passage today. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Let me read them to you. Luke is writing. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As I said, that's a very familiar text to many of us. It's a beautiful description of what this earliest uh, follower of Jesus' community looked like and what they did together. And so we're going to dig in. The first thing I see is the way of shared devotion. The way of shared devotion. A few weeks ago, uh, a kind of disturbing truth dawned on me. I don't know why I was thinking about it, but it kind of came out of nowhere. It dawned on me that in the spring of 2024, about 18 months from now, I will receive an invitation. It will be for my 50th high school reunion. That's a big number, right? I'm sure none of you have, well, maybe a few of you have passed that number. <laughs> now, I've mentioned many times here that I played high school football. Um, there he is, 17 years old. All the original parts are still there. But I had the great distinction of playing quarterback, rather badly, on the first losing team in our school's history. Um, and if I go back to that reunion, and I've only been back to, only been back to one in 50 years, I'll probably go back. If I go back, I will have an immediate connection with my old teammates. Why? Well, because we have shared memories, but they were a long, long time ago. But it's more than that, because we shared the sweat and exhaustion of three-a-day workouts in August. Because we had one week, our senior year, we practiced outside in four inches of snow five days in a row. And we shared the thrill of victory and much more often the agony of defeat. Now, a football team is a community of shared devotion, shared passion, shared joy, and shared pain. But you don't have to be a football player to know what it is to be in a community of shared devotion. Any group of people who share a common passion, a common devotion, could be a sports team, could be a hobby, could be a to a university, could be a to a cause, is by definition a community. And as people of the way, what are we to be devoted to? Verse 42 says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, the ancient word translated devoted just means to, be, to, be, to persist in something, to persevere in something, to continue to do something with unremitting care and commitment. They were devoted to four things, Luke tells us. First, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Uh, a long time ago, one of my friends uh, a guy who's actually in my wedding, uh, who became a youth pastor, still is a youth pastor, all these years later. Uh, he told me a story about being in one of his first churches in Florida. He went there as the new youth pastor and immediately began to, to build a youth ministry from scratch. And he, he was a good teacher, a very charismatic guy, and he would create these, big, these large, fun events with lots of loud music. 
and kids were being drawn. Kids were hearing about Jesus. They were coming, and it was growing. But then one of the senior elders of the church took my friend aside one Sunday and said, son, you won't find this in the Bible, but God says, did you hear that? <laughs> you won't find this in the Bible, but God says, it turns out that God doesn't like loud music. That's what he told my friend. Not so much that they were hearing about Jesus, but the loud music was kind of a problem. That's not exactly being devoted to the apostles' teaching. What did the apostles teach? If we look back just earlier in the book of Acts, we see the first example of this, that when the day of Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit came in a rushing wind, tongues of fire appeared, the apostles began speaking in other languages, and some accused them of being drunk at nine in the morning. And in response to that, Peter preached the first sermon in church history, right on the steps of the temple. He preached that what just had happened was simply a fulfillment of all the prophets had said back in the Old Testament. He preached that Jesus had been sent by God, crucified by sinful men, raised from the dead as Lord and Christ or Messiah. And then he preached that the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit can be received only in the name of Jesus. Peter simply preached what he knew to be true. He preached what we call the gospel, the good news that salvation is not found in, the religion, in religious rituals, but rather in relationship with Christ by faith. Now, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching is to be devoted to the truth of the Word of God and the truth of the gospel. That's why every sermon you hear at Chapel Street, whoever's preaching at whatever campus you go to, is anchored and rooted deeply in the Word of God because we want to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, they were devoted to the fellowship. Now, fellowship is a good word. It's an interesting word because it's kind of been, it's kind of been churchified uh, over the years in that many of us have this version of fellowship in our minds that, uh, that it's synonymous with, you know, a potluck supper. Now, there's nothing wrong with potluck suppers. They're great. Uh, and that's part of fellowship. But it's not the sum total fellowship. It just scratches the surface of what Acts 2 is describing. The word is koinonia in the ancient Greek, and it means shared participation, not observation, not consuming church programs, but shared participation in a community committed to following the way of Jesus. And it's unique and powerful if we understand it. Uh, a couple, about a month ago, as you know, I traveled on a trip to Dubai and Nepal, and we visited a number of small house churches in the hills surrounding Kathmandu. And this woman was leading worship in one of these small house churches, and we got to hear her story after this little service. She was uh, raised in a Buddhist home with alcoholic parents with lots of violence and conflict. Uh, eventually, uh, when she was in her, uh, I think, early 20s, uh, she was invited by a friend to come to her church. She had never heard of the church before, had never heard of Jesus before, but she went with this friend because she wanted to get out of her home. She went there, she experienced something, just in a small church, maybe 20 people, she experienced something she had never experienced before and did not know existed. And it was the love of Jesus through the people of that church. And she kept going back, and she walked each way three miles from her home in the mountain village to this church because it's the only place she had ever experienced this before three miles there and back, several times a week, just to be in the midst of these people. Eventually, she put her faith in Jesus, and today she leads worship in this small house church. Now, two things occur to me when I tell that story. First, 
That kind of fellowship, this kind of fellowship that we see in Acts chapter 2 is, is kind of foreign, almost foreign in the world in which we live, in the affluent world of North America, because we live individualistic and comfortable lives. We don't feel day to day the need for this kind of fellowship. We have our stuff, we have our homes, we have our families, and that's what we have. We don't face persecution or hardship. We don't depend on one another for survival, as happens in many places in the world. So it's foreign to us. Secondly, it dawns on me that even though we're very connected, we think of ourselves as connected, and we have these devices in our pockets that we can email or text at the speed of light to anybody anywhere in the world. We feel like we're connected, but study after study shows that we live in one of the loneliest cultures on the face of the earth because we lack real relationships. When the early church experienced koinonia, it was real relationships that took real time, and real relationships mean sharing both joys and sorrows. That's what they were experiencing in Acts chapter 2. They were devoted to the fellowship. Thirdly, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, many scholars think this simply refers to two things. First, they shared meals together in one another's homes, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And secondly, they remembered the Lord's Supper, what we call communion, the bread and cup, each time they gathered. They were committed to the breaking of bread. And then fourthly, they were devoted to the prayers, or devoted to prayer. Now prayer, we can assume prayer is part of our life as believers, right? But prayer um, has some dimensions to it that we don't often think about. I grew up in the church, as most of you know, surrounded by people who loved me and cared for me um, in both my family and my church family. But when I went to college, I lost all that. I didn't go to a Christian school right off the bat, uh, and I didn't find a church to go to when I was in school. I think I went to church once in all four years. Hard to get off campus Sunday mornings, you know. But what I did do is I got plugged into a small Christian fellowship on campus, and they assigned me to a prayer cell. It met on Thursday evenings in a dorm room at, from 9 to 10 p.m. And these people were not my friends. We were just randomly put together. Uh, I didn't hang out with them Monday through on the other days of the week. The one thing we had in common is we all were followers of Jesus. And that one hour, one night a week, all we did was pray for each other. And that single line of prayer, being prayed for and praying for others, was allowed me to hang on to my faith through the turbulent college years. Prayer. In my years as pastor, I have uh, met many people who have never had that experience, even people in the church, who have never been prayed for personally, out loud, by anybody else, or who have never prayed for someone else personally, out loud. And it's a powerful experience. It's what one we are built to have. What is prayer? We tend to think of prayer as asking God for things, for his help, for his power, for his strength. And it is, but it's also many other things. Let me tick through a few items. Prayer is worship. Jesus began the Lord's Prayer with our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's worship. Prayer is thanksgiving. Psalm 118 says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Prayer is confession. Prayer is also listening to the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us through our hearts, reminding us of what we've been taught, convicting us of sin, guiding us 
and decisions, reminding us that we are loved children of God. But what this text tells us is that prayer is also something that is done together. Not just me by myself, but me with you, us together. The people of the way were people of shared devotion. And secondly, we see the way of shared awe. Shared awe. Let me explain. When I was in Nepal, our group stayed five days in Kathmandu, which is an amazing city, uh, surrounded by mountains that go kind of as far as you can see. And before the trip, I looked online, because I was curious, you know, can you see Mount Everest from Kathmandu? And and they said, on a clear day, you should be able to see the range that, that Everest is in from Kathmandu. So that was what I wanted to see when I got to Kathmandu. So the last day of our trip, I joined a couple other pastors. We took a gondola ride up a 9,000-foot smaller hill so we could kind of get above the clouds to see that, okay? We took it 9,000 feet up, got out, and there was a big uh, poster with an arrow like that that said, oh, yeah, and there it is. That's what we saw. (laughs) Spectacular, isn't it? (laughs) Completely clouded in. Never got to see Mount Everest. But we've all visited places where we feel a sense of awe. Maybe it's a mountain. I think this is Mount Rainier. Or maybe it's Niagara Falls. How many of you have been to Niagara Falls? Yeah, look at this. And it's, you, you can't help but sense awe, the power of the water. Or maybe it's a sunset. I think you recognize where that is, out of their Kessinger campus. And when we experience uh, a sense of awe, it happens when we are in the presence of something that's greater than ourselves. And when we have that experience, what do we want to do? We want to share it. Isn't our instinct to share the awesome with someone? We want to take a picture and post it, or we want to tell somebody about it. We want to make a phone call. We want to share it. In verse 43, we read, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, the word translated awe there is the Greek word phobos, from which we get our word phobia, and its root meaning is fear or terror. But in this context, it means respect or reverence, being awestruck. Now, what caused them to be awestruck, these earliest followers of the way? They were in awe because of what God was doing in and through the apostles, what God was doing in and through the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit with power, the gospel being preached to people in their languages, people coming to faith in Jesus. It's often assumed that the wonders and signs being talked about refer to the miraculous works of God, and that's true. In Nepal, we had the chance to hear individual stories of brand new believers coming out of Hindu and Buddhist backgrounds. Three quarters of them, at least, told stories of being healed from diseases. And everything in me wants to go, wait, wait, hold on a second. All of you? Every, almost every single story? Now, does, do we believe God still heals through the power of His Spirit? Yes, we do believe that. That's what we pray for week by week here in the service. But I have to admit that it seems like it happens a lot more in other parts of the world where people are more desperate, where there's more suffering, where there's more poverty. And I really can't explain that. But that's what I've seen in my experience. But I believe that the miraculous happens in other ways too that maybe we need to open our eyes to a little bit more. Because I think every person who comes to new faith in Christ is a miracle. Because eternity is at stake. 
I think every baptism we celebrate is a little miracle because it means a heart forever changed. I think every person whose heart is open to service for the first time or open to generosity is a miracle because that's the Holy Spirit working in someone's life. May we learn to see the miracles of God done through his people in his church and respond with awe. People of the way were people of shared awe. And thirdly, see the way of shared love. Verse 44, And all who believed were together and all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice that little word, together. that appears twice in those verses. So what did the people of the way do together? What kinds of things? Well, it says that they shared worship together. Daily, they went to the temple, which was the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, but they worshiped on the steps outside of the temple because that's where they naturally went. They worshiped together every day. They joined in the awe of worship. They celebrated what God was doing in and through the church. Secondly, they shared a kind of contagious generosity. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It sounds a little bit like shepherd's heart down on the lower level here. And breaking bread of their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. What I want you to notice here is the connection between those two, two words, glad and generous. Glad and generous. We're going to come back to generosity in a couple of weeks in this series. But it seems to me that the way of Jesus is describing an intimate sort of spiritual connection between gladness of heart and generosity. That is, gladness tends to produce generosity, and generosity tends to produce gladness. If I have you think about it, do you know anyone in your life who is a profoundly glad person, who just has joy about them, but at the same time is stingy with their time and their resources? I don't think you can think of someone who's like that. Or can you think of someone who's, who's just greatly generous with their time and their resources, but it's just a sourpuss. I don't think you can think of anybody like that either. Because these tend to go together in the way of Jesus. One produces the other. They shared this contagious generosity. And thirdly, they shared meals together. Now, this is a very simple thing. I think it's a profound thing. One of my most powerful experiences of the church actually didn't happen in church. It happened around a table set with food, homemade food, surrounded by people. It was when I was living in Switzerland, right out of college. I was 22, living far away from my family for the first time, living in Geneva, Switzerland. I found a little English-speaking Baptist church to go to, and I went every week there because it was in English, and there were people from Canada and South Africa and Australia there. But there was a Scottish family, Douglas and Fiona Marr, and they made it their business to invite anyone in that little church family, it was smaller than this room, uh, who did not have family living with them in Switzerland to come with them to their home for dinner, Sunday dinner. It was standing invitation every Sunday. So I started going because I was 22, I was by myself, and I was longing for home-cooked food, and so I went. And I kept going, and I went, and I went. What happened was more than a meal. We sat at that table for a couple hours, and it was stocked with food, and there were eight or ten of us around the table, and then it became a walk in the countryside, and then it was tea time, and a lot of times I didn't get home until like nine o'clock at night. And what I realized was happening around that table was 
fellowship, was love, was relationship, was caring. There was a warmth there that gave me a place. I think that's what's being talked about here. We see in Acts 2 a kind of rhythm back and forth between the awe of worship, gathering daily in the temple to worship and to praise God, but also meeting together with gladness and sincere hearts in their homes for meals together. There's a rhythm. We need both. We need the big event. We need the small event. We need to be with all of God's people celebrating, and we need to be with a few who know us and love us and pray for us. That's why we encourage everyone who's part of Chapel Street to find some way to embed themselves in a smaller setting. Maybe a rooted group, maybe a life group, maybe a, a, a women's Bible study group, maybe a men's ministry team group, maybe a, a, a high school discipleship group. Find your way into a smaller group. Because if at this point in your spiritual journey, you are connecting to Chapel Street in a worship service on a weekend, but that's it, that's good. We're happy for that. But we do not experience what God has for us until we are embedded in a group where we can actually be known loved, prayed for, where we experience fellowship. Lastly, they shared a community marked by love. In John 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. I believe that love is one of the most overused and misunderstood words in our language, in our culture. One of the most misunderstood and, and overused words. Because this is not love as in fondness for something, like, I love chocolate chip cookies, or I love the Cubs. This is not love as, as is most often described in our culture today as romantic, sexual love. That's almost the only definition we see around us today in our culture. This is not that kind of love. This is the love of God. The word is agape here. And it's a love commanded by Jesus. Now, in our culture, people say, well, how can you command love? Love is a feeling. You have it or you don't. That's not the biblical definition. Jesus commands this love because it's a love that is as much decision and action as it is feeling. It's a love that is personal. It's not a general love. I love, I love, I love everyone. No, it's a personal love. It happens only in relationships. It's a love that's unconditional. It's, it's not dependent on love coming back from the other. It's love as a gift. It's the love of God. It's love that is sacrificial. It's love that, is, that takes action at its own expense. Last week we saw that Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. It's an astonishing thing. Now he says... I want you to love others as I have loved you. You see the progression? The Father has loved me. I love you. You love as I have loved you. The current cultural narrative where we live, right here in America, North America, the current cultural narrative about the church is, do you know what it is? Do you know what the people outside of us think of us? The current cultural narrative is that we are self-righteous, holier-than-thou, judgmental, hypocritical, and profoundly unloving. That's the cultural narrative. And Jesus calls us to change that narrative. 
because we are his people, people of the way, people marked by love. That's what made the, the, the earliest followers of the way absolutely unique in the ancient world. No one had ever seen a group like this before in the ancient Roman Empire. They were new. They were different. They loved each other. They loved people who weren't part of their group. They loved the outcast. They loved the poor. They ministered to the prisoner and to the refugee and to the sick and the dying and to the prisoner. They ministered to all who were outcast. Together they became a community of gladness and generosity that had an irresistible influence and an irresistible attraction. Notice the result. The last phrase in this passage, which is the point, I think, of the entire passage. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. A few years ago, a friend of mine in church uh, told me a story about one of his uh, children who was a, a young adult son, I think just out of college. He said that son invited one of his friends, like an old college friend, to come to him one day to Chapel Street. But the friend hesitated, was very hesitant about coming to church because he had multiple tattoos, multiple piercings in his face and ears and stuff. And he assumed that he would not be received well. He had had bad experiences earlier in his life in the church and he didn't want to come. Uh, but the, the man told me his son said, no, 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 not, not, that won't happen at my church. If you come to my church, the people at my church are cool. I was like, cool, we're cool, that's good. They won't judge you, they won't reject you, they will love you. They'll be so glad you came. In other words, he had great confidence that his friend would see and experience something different, a different kind of community, a different kind of way, a different kind of gladness and generosity, the way of fellowship and love. Now, I don't remember, I don't know what happened to that friend. He did come, but I pray that eventually, eventually, he became one more that the Lord added to our number here or somewhere else. One more added to those being saved. Because the great third place isn't a coffee shop. The great third place isn't a coffee shop. It's us. It's the church. It's people of the way. Because that's the way of Jesus. Let's pray as we close. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this beautiful description of the very first people of the way, our, our ancestors. We ask you to remind us that we who follow you, we who trust you, are also people of the way. We ask you to strengthen our devotion, deepen our fellowship, and empower us to love as you have loved us. And we ask you to add to our number those who are being saved. And it's your name that we pray. Amen. Just before the benediction, let me remind you that week by week we have members of our prayer team available following the benediction. If you have an issue going on in your life or your family's life that you'd like to receive prayer for, just come up. We'll spend time with you down here in front. Receive now the benediction. May we go in the love of God the Father and in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a great day.